Doing justice work can mean advising or teaching or conducting research with the people who work in criminal justice. Today's guest, Dr. Hannah Graham, is interested in all of these methods. Also an expert in electronic monitoring, we talk about the use of technology in reaction to COVID and about the time she wore TAG herself. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Dr. Hannah Graham is a senior lecturer in criminology in the Scottish Centre for Crime and Justice Research at the University of Stirling. As a criminologist, she has contributed expert evidence to the Scottish Parliament on justice policy and law reform, including the presumption against short prison sentences, electronic monitoring, tagging and the Management of Offenders Act, and prisoner voting and human rights. She also is a member of the National Council of the Scottish Association for the Study of Offending, and in 2019 was appointed to the Scottish Sentencing Council, an independent advisory body. Hannah's also written or edited four books, one of which we'll be discussing today, Rehabilitation Work, Supporting Desistance and Recovery. So, Dr Hannah Graham, welcome to Justice Focus. Hello, thank you for having me. No, no, thank you for making the time to come and have a chat. And I know that you are involved in many different areas of criminal justice. And so I want to ask you about many of those those areas. But one thing I want to start with is I know that you've referred to this term pracademia before. And so I wanted to ask you, are you a pracademic and, and what does the term mean to you? Yeah, so those are, those are really good questions. Um, recently, I think... In thinking about my career, even though I get involved in quite a few different things and get very passionate uh, about quite a few different things, the common thread throughout my work, the vast majority of my work, has been an interest in uh, justice work and how people in criminal justice and in allied sectors who are working with people with convictions or people with different life experiences that have brought them into um, professional services. I've long been interested in what professionals do, who they are, what they think, um, and not just as a detached um, observer who sort of tenaciously says, well, objectivity, but as someone Mm. who uh, wants to listen, to understand, Mm. and to be in and around their world of work and to unsettle some taken-for-granted assumptions because there are stereotypes or outsider perspectives. Sometimes those are influenced by uh, the media, Mm. news media, cultural constructions of justice work. And so there are ideas that ha- about what happens behind the closed doors of probation and community corrections in prisons, in, in drug rehab, uh, in courts. And, and some of what we see in the public domain uh, has inflections of truth or reality and other, other aspects or representations are just a bit... Um, exaggerated or Mm. nothing like the realities of justice work. And so from the courts to uh, probation and community justice settings through to prisons, electronic monitoring, tagging, um, drug rehab through to mental health diversion Mm. and court, 
um, I've had a strong interest in the opportunity to visit a lot, um, do research with, listen to um, people who are working in different contexts with similar groups or sometimes the same groups of people. Um, and also to just learn a lot from their practice wisdom and honour that as a form of expertise and knowledge because there'll be settings or contexts where I come in and because I work at a university or because I've got a doctorate or have done particular things that are valued in certain circles or in certain mm. ways, you come in with a power and privilege and people say, oh, you know, they use titles for me or they talk about certain things. Mm. Meanwhile, there are other people in the room with different forms of professional and personal lived experience that are incredibly interesting, mm. have knowledge and wisdom to contribute. And just because it's different mm. in some cases to my qualifications or my background um, doesn't mean it should be ignored or obscured for academic voices. And so with Pracademia, that's something that um, I have enjoyed spending and continue to enjoy any excuse to spend time around people who are working in the area and people who are policymakers or in the politics of the area. I'm interested in people whose, whose work and professionalism is is what they do on a daily basis, but also the knowledge that they have to contribute. And I think that mm. that makes the academia that I'm interested in, more infused with reality, uh, closer to what they would recognise as accurate, uh, but also bringing concepts and different standpoints. So mm. I don't call myself a practitioner, even though I've worked in and around a variety of practice contexts throughout my career. I have always been employed independently for reasons uh, that are helpful of freedom and autonomy. Mm. Um, I can have thoughts, say things in the media, say things in speeches and briefings and lectures that are not subject to the line management of an employer. But it has been a real privilege and some of the most interesting experiences that I've had in my career have been with and alongside practitioners. Mm. And so... I would often think of those collaborations as partnering together. Um, I've tried to co-author with practitioners where I can because there are times when academics can be a bit guilty of what has been called snatch and grab data extraction, where they come right. in, they're there to do evaluation research or they're there to do their latest uh, independently funded study by a research council and even though mm. there is rapport and uh, politeness there can be a sense that sometimes academics in, in a privileged position only turn up when they want something and only contact mm. people in practice when they mm. are the keynote speaker or when they want to recruit them as participants for their study or um you know, when, when there's something in it that involves something that's valued or prioritised by academics, whereas I think mm. that it's incredibly important to be relational in your approach, to turn up to things where you're going to be an audience member and you're going to listen. Um, it's not all about having the podium or the lectern or telling people about things that they could probably lecture on themselves. So I don't want to denigrate or downplay what academia has to offer, but I think mm. it's far more ethical 
if we consider ourselves among other people who have expertise and experience and try and really ground that in relationships, in helping with mutuality and camaraderie and collegiality. And then when you do get to do the thing that perhaps some practitioners might not be able to do, um, they're usually very supportive and feed into it because... There are certain things that people who are public servants or civil servants that make up quite a lot of justice work, um, they're not free without permission to say certain things to the media or give particular um, mm. views at conferences if, if it could reflect on their employer in certain ways. So it's around working with practitioners, um, co-authoring, co inviting them in to do guest lectures. Um, I teach on justice work at university and making sure that you're respecting and honouring their practice wisdom, but also, um, I guess, backing yourself or being proud of what criminologists as mm. academics can bring in terms of concepts and ways of knowing that are independent, so I'm not employed uh, by anyone that I work with and I have never been, even though, um, for mm. example, in, in the early days of uh, being around a mental health court and then being around a drug rehab for th three or four years that had attachments with justice and the drug court, um, I deliberately worked from uh, that setting for at least one day a week because the things that you would see and know and understand, it was a far better learning process even though that wasn't technically all research or being taken as data, I think that our, mm. our research and our consultancy collaboration with the practitioners and with service users uh, and families was far richer from being around mm. their world and their lives and taking the time to do that. So the other thing is one of my uh, PhD supervisors and master's supervisors was uh, he specialised in what's called ethnomethodology. It's a very geeky methodological term, but basically he specialised okay. in um, conversations, processes and the minute detail of studying people at work. And I think that his passion for that mm. area um, affected my passion and therefore in my master's, my PhD and a variety of research projects since, as well as policy forums or um, knowledge exchange or other forms of partnership that don't involve research. Um, I've, mm. I've had the honour of learning and hearing from people a lot. And unfortunately, some of the best stories can't be told. So there is confidentiality <laughs> um, yeah. and holding different voices and views and some of the most spectacular experiences can't always be shared mm. because they would readily identify who was present and who, mm. who was involved. So there is a balance in, in holding confidences, being trusted because bridges that take years to build can be burnt in moments, to use a metaphor. You, yeah. you can burn your bridges very quickly if you misuse trust. So I think it's about being and relational. Can I ask you Sorry, I was just going to say, can I, I just want to ask you about that then, because um, I guess when we talk about pracademia, a lot of people think about practitioners also doing academia. And what you've described seems much more sort of like a facilitator role in between the two and even representing different groups when they, it might be sort of uh, politically unwise for them to represent their own thoughts and feelings and so I wondered are there any particular times where you have felt that you've been able to represent the truth or the reality of a situation on behalf of um, other 
other groups where it might have been difficult for them because they're directly employed by somebody but it was an attempt to to get to the reality of the situation yeah so on on the traditional definition or the more widespread definition of pracademia um, I should say some of my favorite academics I love reading and meeting with um, a lot of them have held roles in homeless and housing accommodation in as probation officers working in mm. prisons and then they've gone to um, join academia and they've infused that into their careers I think that I don't emphasize that as much because I have have predominantly been employed by universities. I've done three degrees back to back whilst working full time during a few of them. So I'm careful not to represent myself as doing that, but more as someone who's alongside. Because um, if you think about, for example, the amazing Professor Rob Canton, he has had a career before um, his contributions in academia, and yet his contributions in academia are so rich, they're very theoretical, mm. um, but they are immediately appealing to to people that have been around practice settings um, because he's got those different forms of expertise and experience. And mm. there's lots more people that I could name, but I guess in terms of representation, that's an area that I try and hold loosely in that practitioners should be free to speak to their trade unions. Uh, mm. They should be free to speak to their line managers. Um, I don't want to do a disservice to justice leaders who do represent them and do speak up. But if we think about how parliaments work and how governments work, if we think about how mm. giving evidence to committees work, that's nearly always dominated by people who are CEOs or who are policy leads and are mm. in really senior positions. And then academics routinely uh, get asked to give evidence, to give independent views, to survey the literature, to say what um, qualitative data is or statistical data. But I think that when that's something that I do and I'm really interested in penal policy and penal politics and how that can affect lived experiences and the world of justice work, um, I need to be careful so I wouldn't turn up and say, look, I'm representing practitioners. But I think if, mm. you can, if you can show independent findings from a research project where you've spent a lot of time in the corridors, in, in the tea room, um, in their offices, and whilst those components might not be data as such, it might be more the interviews, the focus groups, the the observations of uh, particular practices or of a court setting or of electronic monitoring and so on, you need to have a boundary around what is uh, being collected and transcribed and reported uh, and de-identified in confidential ways as findings. But I think also in writing that report or writing up that evidence uh, and, and presenting it to people in positions of influence and power, including justice leaders themselves in, in the heads of organisations uh, across the field. People are intrinsically interested because they know that you've probably spent a lot of time listening and that if you can say something with integrity, if it's, if it's got um, a sound research design as well as a relational context in which you've not just turned up, done a structured interview and disappeared, but you've actually spent mm. time around the context in which you're researching, that's seen to hold a view and academics can say things and do things that are not subject to veto. Um, you could lose favour. 
Um, you could, mm. you know, you could uh, have some contrasting views. But I think in a healthy democracy and in contexts where there are respectful relationships where people are not um, slagging one another off unprofessionally or, or really going head to head all the time, or it's not that heated, my experience in Scotland, in Europe and in Australia is that you can have a constructive difference of opinion. You can present inconvenient truths or things that perhaps nuance um, some of the overarching claims and talk about the, th the things that practitioners and, and people with lived experience or service users are going through. And that's often very mm. well received. It's often received with interest because um, you would try and offer it in a constructive way, even if it contests certain narratives. And so practitioners are quite good at contacting you informally and feeding into that uh, through relational means. But I wouldn't be saying that I represent them. It's more being done with them rather than as, mm. as a type of... I wouldn't wish to be... Um, presenting as a kind of a, a kind of sa yeah. saviour or crusader because I think people who do that often have quite unhealthy insecurities and, and need to be needed mm. and they like the limelight. So, um, yeah, it's, it's more a sounding board for different perspectives, but also academia brings to it a critical analytical lens that can take a step back from aspects of that and say, well, these patterns are replicated in these ways or here is another way of seeing that. And even though that sounds uh, mm. very nice, using bureaucratic or civil service speak, it might actually be obscuring or um, distracting from particular harms or particular hmm. pressure points that um, good good leaders, good ministers, uh, people who are particularly skilled and capable at, the, at their area are usually actually okay hearing about. Um, it, it's, it's more people that are, are very sensitive. Uh, they can mm. sometimes react, but you can't build a career based on a fear of what others think or you wouldn't. In the area of punishment sure. and criminal justice, you would, you would say very little. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And could, you've touched on it a, a couple of times in terms of when you were giving your expert evidence to parliament and there, there are a few different topics that you've represented at, at parliament. So I wondered, could you tell us a little bit about the actual experience of going through that? I mean, I think, you know, most people, even that work within criminal justice, wouldn't wouldn't be familiar with what that's like other than in films and things when an expert witness is called to a court and I know that's very different to, to what you've done in this situation but for those for those who haven't been involved in that particular process where you know taking research to government that may influence policy what has that experience been like for you as somebody working in the area? Well, it, it's something that I've loved. It's, it's a privilege and um, very enjoyable. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes before you do it. Mm. Um, and in a lot of uh, democratic processes, there would normally be a written submission first. Um, so you would prepare a brief, and that is an art within itself because academics, um, I quite like writing books that are 80 or 90,000 words, um, long reports, um, that is a skill that we have. But briefs that are for, a parliament um, are for people in the policy making environment need to be mm. uh, like one of the encouraged maximums in the Scottish Parliament is no more than five pages and realistically right. what you need to do is get the 
the essence or the critical messages and the key evidence on that first page in summary form and then unpack it with contact, uh, context, supporting evidence and just making sure that what you said is defensible, that you could uh, further sort of prove or demonstrate your line of argument as well as it's intellectually and analytically rigorous um, because mm. it, the likelihood is if you are called, and I've, I've given evidence in person a few times, um, as well as supported other people when we've written as part of a collective to do it, um, if you are called, that will be um, probably an hour in a panel, sometimes shorter. Um, I've done it alongside people that were from a more penal reform and activist point of view, people who are lawyers and incredibly precise, um, people who are academics, people who are charity leaders. And so you'll be called into a panel. Um, my experience in Scotland is that the clerks are very organised and very mm. good at explaining the process and you'll be questioned and people will be potentially watching it on Parliament TV. It will get transcribed word for word. Um, there will be, it, you know, there can be newspaper and journalist uh, reporters uh, looking at what you're doing and then reporting on it in live time or there might be people who are live tweeting it. Aspects of what we do in Parliament are not that uh, heated in terms of giving evidence but sometimes you are either giving written evidence or verbal evidence in a way on a topic that can be quite contested and you get some really interesting questions like they are structured and, and members of the very, of in Scotland, the five different parties will be asking you questions. And one of the more interesting questions that I've asked that was uh, much food for thought, it was within the Management of Offenders Scotland Act in 2019, which I had uh, quite a role in um, doing research alongside and then feeding research mm. evidence into and then writing and giving evidence to the parliament and then following all of the debates in the debating chamber. And the area mm. that I was focused on was more on electronic monitoring technologies in criminal justice. But one of the questions that I was asked about, and it was based on evidence from a wonderful colleague, uh, Beth Weaver from the University of Strathclyde. She specialises more in disclosure uh, of criminal records and of criminal convictions, how long um, before criminal records stop being effective or predictive and they become stale records. And so we'd co-written some evidence on behalf of our research centre, the Scottish Centre for Crime and Justice Research. And hmm. one of the questions that I got was from her area, so I, I read quite a bit of the literature in the background in preparation, um, but the ability to be brief, to be succinct, but uh, to do justice to your point is quite interesting. And one of the most interesting questions I got asked, and um, the panel in the previous week, including heads of major justice agencies, had been asked, what is disclosure for? And none of them had wanted to answer that question. And then it was mm. asked to our panel um, the week after at the Justice Committee, asked by um, a Scottish Conservative MSP uh, with qualifications in law. And I think he had a real genuine interest in in asking about something that people did not get expected to uh, ask, even though it was a substantive part of the bill. And I think being right. able to reflect on your feet and spontaneously, but also talking about disclosure periods and what they represent, the lived experience 
who is disclosure for, um, talking about mm. the risk paradigm. There's lots of things that you can hopefully bring into it that um, perhaps people in agency roles across the justice system, they would normally leave that to the body, the Scottish Government body that covers disclosure, and rightly so because we do have uh, experts in, in that area. But my experience of giving evidence and as someone who utterly loves Scottish politics and policy, um, who reads a lot of transcripts, evidence briefing, who live tweets parliament sessions, um, mm. is that there's a real collegiality and there's a respect for difference of opinion. So you can fundamentally disagree with a particular law reform or policy proposal. And I have done that uh, once or twice in Scotland, and I've certainly done it in Australia um, with the parliament in, in the jurisdiction where I'm from. But if it's mm. done respectfully and relationally, it's not personal. But here's a stack of evidence yeah. to demonstrate why your ideas are highly problematic and I'm going to oppose yeah. this law reform with my waking hours. Um, you, can, you can still get on respectfully and get on well and yet fundamentally mm. disagree. And if, if it's serious enough or major enough, um, organise and mobilise and strategise against a particular... Uh, proposal f f for my personal politics as well as my professional views I have an allergy to punitiveness so I don't like things mm. that um, are a sort of punitive populism that are all around the get tough the law and order narrative mm -hmm. and I think we have quite a few studies from around the world that would support <clears throat> how that can come to be quite problematic in how it's applied and so that's an example of I can usually pick up on that a mile away and um, engage yeah. with some of that rhetoric, but also say, I think this is this is problematic and here are the reasons um, in relation yeah. to parole or in relation to um, changing community orders and sentences or whatever it is. Mm. And maybe if we could get into some specifics of that. I mean, first of all, I want to say that's really refreshing that, to hear that there's this full discussion of ideas and evidence across parties that's it's really nice to hear because um yeah so much of the time topics are presented in such a dichotomous way and you know people not listening to each other's side so it's really nice to hear that that's what's been your experience in scotland mm -hmm. um but i wanted to ask you specifically you know you've mentioned about the electronic monitoring and tagging and i know this is something you've done a lot of work on and yeah, you've just mentioned that this is something you've talked to in Parliament. And so I want to ask you about what are the kind of common misconceptions around that link to sort of the more punitive mindsets that, that do you, are there certain questions that you get asked a lot of the time linked to tag? And yeah, I just kind of want to give you free reign to, to, to give your thoughts on the position of electronic monitoring in Scotland at the moment. Yeah, so the way that I came to that was um, I moved from working as an academic in Australia to uh, move to Scotland to work on a project, the Scottish component of which was led by Professor Gil MacGyver at the University of Stirling, um, as well as a range of colleagues in Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany and England and Wales. So we had an international 
team of academics looking at electronic monitoring as an alternative to custody or how it's used in criminal justice in EU member states. Mm -hmm. And so that was a comparative study. And then also being commissioned to write briefs or to do international evidence and Scottish evidence reviews. And so that was how I sort of came to it from a research perspective. And that research involved um, uh, interviewing and background literature review and looking at uh, written or secondary data and also involved um, observing. So we had the opportunity to observe field officers or people who are in national electronic monitoring centres and also going out into the field predominantly at night going into people's homes to tag people and I think again that's an example of the interviews across the range of stakeholders including the judiciary, the prison service, community justice, social work <clears throat> And then uh, with electronic monitoring in Scotland, it's a private sector provider. And I think from hearing from those different perspectives was really useful, but then actually also getting to see it happen, being in people's homes, seeing the technology um, and seeing it being put on, taken off, um, interviews with people when they were potentially non-compliant or in breach of their order, although that would be decided by um, the judiciary or by the prison or the parole board, but notes were being taken. And I think that really informed a perspective around what the different dimensions of what it is like in practice compared to what you read about, who you read, and the overarching narratives of what electronic monitoring technologies can be. And there are quite a few myths, and I think some of those have come from um, popular culture constructions um, of what each hmm. different type of tag can do. So there's restrictions around staying home um, and home curfew monitoring. There's location monitoring, so more GPS tagging and tracking. Um, again, these are usually separate tags, although um, some of the tags can do both. And then there's alcohol monitoring tags or devices. Mm. And with the GPS tagging and tracking, I also had the opportunity myself. I volunteered to be tagged for... A while, and uh, that was okay. a short period of time, yeah. and I wore the tag quite publicly. And again, a, a whole lot of practitioners across Scotland did this. Um, I was one of right. the only academics who did it. And I think based on doing something yourself, it's not the same as the experience of people with convictions. So I would not mm. get sent to Balini if I was non-compliant, um, and yeah. at, at times I was, or if I did things that were deemed to be um, non-compliant by decision-makers. But I think... Being around their world of work, uh, being around people who are chatting away in their front room or have their kitties around them, and then also wearing it yourself brought an insight and a richness that informed the research alongside international evidence and literature review. And when we first started looking in this area, I'd say that there has been a real um, cultural shift and change within Scotland around electronic monitoring and so um, I had the opportunity to go to practitioner events in local authorities across uh, the nation including in some places I was fairly new to Scotland at the time I didn't even know where I was I'd just been put on a train to a mm. lovely town somewhere and getting to here yeah. and I think that because of the way that electronic monitoring had been structured in Scotland so for about 14 or 15 years at that point 
justice social workers had not really had a place at the table. They were not supervising officers of electronically monitored orders. So the community Mm. payback order and before that the probation order did not have justice social workers, so our equivalent of probation officers, supervising or working with Uh, people unless orders were co-imposed alongside one another. And so it was largely a standalone option that had been done by a private sector company which contracts change but is subcontracted to the Scottish Government. And it had worked in a very simple and moderately standard way. It was all around home curfews uh, for a set amount of months or coming out of prison for a set amount of weeks or months to do home curfews. So it was used... In a few ways, but I think in in community justice, amongst justice social workers and, and charity workers, there was some quite legitimate questions. There was apprehension around what does it mean if more people are potentially tagged in Scotland. And there was also mm. questions in the background around what will this mean for my work? Because... If someone is doing something that you're supervising that um, is on on the boundaries or the borders of what's non-compliant, you you can have a relational conversation with them about that. You can um, engage people. You can use different tools or approaches to try and encourage compliance and to steer away from the non-compliance that might then become a breach. But when technology, if it's working properly, and in most cases it's fairly stable, but uh, when technology is, is working well, it will immediately report and there will be evidence of time and you know potentially place, depending on the type of technology. And there's less there's a perception that there's less room for professional discretion um, and for that mm. relationship building around it. And so it, it affects their sense of their professionalism, the relationship with people with convictions or service users, um, and how that might affect their work, people's lives, um, whether it could be a pathway to being breached more and an escalation of supervision or being put onto a short prison sentence or recalled to prison if, if they're on a home detention curfew licence or a parole licence. And so... Technology is perceived in different ways. Some people have quite dystopian Orwellian views that it's incredibly Mm. horrific and punitive and it should never be used. Um, Mm. Those views are particularly common um, in the United States where it has been and continues to be used in disproportionate punitive ways. People might be made to pay for use of uh, a device of punishment and monitoring um, Mm. and uh, being used in coercive ways. And then there are other ways where it can be used in um, less punitive ways. I want to be careful about making really positive claims about it because it really is contingent upon context, upon relationships um, and on the person's experience, it's still used as a form of punishment. You don't wear a tag for fun. (laughs) It's it's not an enjoyable um, or novel experience or if it is, that wears off very quickly because people look at Mm. you in particular ways and it visibly can identify you as someone with a criminal record or someone who's broken Mm. the law. So it can also be Did you experience that yourself? Yeah, yeah, I did. So um, I wore it quite visibly. I didn't cover it up. 
Um, mm. I wore it in the city. I wore it to work. I didn't tell people that I was going to turn up was wearing it. Was it on your it. ankle or on your arm? Yeah, oh. so it was on my ankle, quite a large mm-hmm. grey GPS device. Um, it's like having a heavy, it's like having a TomTom GPS or a children's plastic toy that's very heavy strapped to your ankle. Mm. It's not comfortable per se, yeah. although you become accustomed to it. And with one exception where I covered it up because I needed to, um, I wore it publicly and I've, I've not been looked at in those ways before. Um, mm. And I also what became, well, negative. Like pr- there was a few mm. people um, who were more intrigued um, or uh, thought it was amusing or had more of a curiosity response. But mm. I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, I was going to another university for work and I was wearing it in a coffee shop and then walking around the university campus and there was an academic there who saw me in close proximity and had quite a visible reaction of disgust. He stepped back and was like, oh my goodness, he started muttering and was looking at it and mm. sort of pointing. Um, and then two years after that experience, he's still scared of me. So if I go near him, and I, I don't know him <laughs> at a personal level, but he yeah. still identifies me as the person that he saw in, in a coffee shop wearing a tag, obviously having mm. a criminal record, and I think saw that as a very negative, get away from me, um, why are you here? I mean, I didn't I didn't speak with him, but he has very visible reactions when he sees me, and I've mm. never explained that I don't have convictions and that I was wearing it as, right. as, okay. as a voluntary trial. I also mm. wore it near um, a prison. Um, for work and some people were going to the prison that um, from their conversations suggested that they had been in prison before themselves and they were going to visit Mm. uh, some some immediate family members or that at least they'd been tagged because they knew precisely what it was and they came up to me on a bus and were like oh and I had this immediate street cred um, which I was not used to and all the other people on the bus like who were queuing for it looked at my ankle because they were pointing at it and they were like oh like check out that gear Uh, it was a much more sweary and uh, forthright Exchange. It was a very mm. happy and loud exchange, and I had street cred because they were like, oh, "What have you done?" Because that's not the um, radio frequency tag. They knew that it was a different type of tag, and so um, I got on the bus right. first. And when they got on, the, the um, two men in their thirties and forties, they they were impressed. They stopped the whole bus to pretty much salute me, um, and I had some street cred for something that I hadn't done and wasn't actually my own uh, experience. And that was thought provoking because they knew that I had some kind of new generation tag that wasn't the stock standard old one mm-hmm. and so yeah you get a variety um, of responses but they're mo- mostly negative and it also changes I got yeah. off easily because I'm a woman so there is research to show that when men wear the tags people assume that they've done violence uh, domestic abuse or sexual assault mm-hmm. sex offending and so they are uh, viewed in quite stigmatizing ways whereas people who interacted with me thought maybe you know fraud or um, offence types that they saw as consistent with how I physically presented, um, whereas men can mm. have more 
assume the worst uh, kind of experience. The other thing is that I had to carry my passport with me because I have an accent. So I'm a British citizen. I'm also an Australian citizen. But because uh, we can tag an immigration context for people that are set to be deported or at risk of being deported, right. I had to carry my passport as a form of ID to prove that I was not um, being tagged and, and um, trapped by the the home office so it it, it turns up mm. an irony and and a multitude of experiences the other thing i found that i was doing was um i became quite self-conscious and i'm not a self-conscious person i'm not prone to being anxious or worried or focused mm -hmm. on uh me but i found that when i was shopping um and this isn't at all surprising, but the fear of not being believed of, oh, it's it's for a trial. Oh, yeah, you know, pull the other one. So getting things right. like um, <laughs> yeah. I was always really careful to get receipts, to not touch my bag, to not go into aisles in shops with really high value items in case it was thought. And I did have mm. security sort of able to see it and in one instance following me around stores so it brings suspicion and distrust and it brings and mm. this was wearing it quite visibly there are ways that you might be able to conceal it to a certain extent but it's also scotland's quite cold and wearing a gps tag which is quite big women can't wear boots and and we live in in boots as footwear for most of the year because it's cold and so it changes how mm. you dress um the shoes that you wear um, at, at my work, I wore it around a university campus and someone called security. Um, and uh, then security uh, came by and were like very warmly and, and happily saying hello, very cheery, because they saw a woman, they didn't look mm. at my ankle, they saw a woman uh, with an accent, yeah. thought that I might be a visiting tourist or um, a member of staff and were very warm. And they said, oh, I've got to go. There's been reports of um, some thing down by uh, the lock that we have and um, I wondered whether to clarify that that was actually me or not um, but I mm. really believe in access to education um, it, it, it's a privilege to have people that might have recently been in prison or on orders and licenses study with, studying with us and they have every right to the community uh, campus to to be accessing education and so I think the 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 response was well-meaning but someone had fearfully phoned them and said look there's someone with a tag on on campus and you must come mm. whereas uh, it was an academic from a middle class uh, standing or presentation um, wandering around the flowers and the lock and presenting no harm at all yeah yeah and do you think that all these extra sort of burdens that that somebody experiences through wearing the tag aren't really factored into the policies when people actually have to wear these. And do, uh, I guess on top of that, do you think that if tagging in this way is going to be part of the future, do we need to do more work with the public then to say you don't need to immediately alarm the security because you see someone in a tag i mean the whole point is meant to be that that person is not an immediate risk to the public if they're out on a tag so yeah i guess two twofold do you think um yeah do you think there's a way to factor in these additional issues when we're creating the policies around tag and the way of reducing these extra horrible burdens that you experienced um and probably would be far worse if you um had been ordered to wear it 
through the courts and then additionally linked to better public education around what TAG means. Sure. Um, I'd, I'd suggest that particularly in Scotland, and I've also um, had quite a bit of connection with different jurisdictions, justice leaders and policymakers in Australia around electronic monitoring tagging and the use of technology in um, probation and parole and community justice, um, as well as courts. Mm. And my sense, I mean, you don't want to generalise, but overall, the policymakers have been quite attuned to the realities of what it is. Um, and in, in the Scottish context, quite a few, more often than not, they've probably worn the tag themselves um, to see what right. that was like and to see um, if they were going near exclusion <laughs> zones. Again, that's not the same as the experience of being returned to court or being returned to prison um, if mm. you were non-compliant. But I think that their awareness of issues of stigma um, and potentially dehumanising views and language and reactions mm -hmm. um, because tagging can get quite negative responses in the press. I think they are well attuned to that. Um, there are limits on the extent to which, I mean, if it's being used with people uh, who have been convicted and sentenced, it's being used in the context of punishment. So I wouldn't... We shouldn't be using it in... Uh, punitive ways, we need to bear in mind proportionality and personalisation, but I, I think there's limits mm. on the extent to which you can make a form of punishment um, appealing or a positive or a happy experience because there are always going to be the, there's the famous theorizations around the pains of prison the pains of probation uh, the pains of electronic monitoring mm. and even uh, some good scholarly work around the pains of desistance so it, it does involve hardship and some of the harms we should work to minimize or to mitigate but I also wouldn't uh, want to go down the path of almost doing like an advertising or a marketing campaign for devices that, you know, they can be used and they need to have quite distinct use. But I wouldn't be um, hoping to run around saying it's incredible, it's amazing, we should all be using it. Um, it's not exactly the same as a Fitbit. It's not exactly the same as a smartphone. People's families are stressed about whether they are home on time or whether they are travelling near um, an exclusion zone, if it's a GPS exclusion zone. Mm. People themselves are worried about their bus being late or um, accidentally going near uh, a place that they are restricted away from. Um, and so I think we need to bear in mind the human realities of, of this experience, that some people experience it as a bit like being incarcerated at home if they're giving particularly long and onerous home curfews. And in countries like Belgium, um, they are predominantly, in certain uses, they'll be predominantly at home, so they could be spending quite a bit of time under home curfew, whereas in Scotland it's limited right. usually usually uh, imposed overnight, so from 7pm at night to 7am in the morning. So it can be used constructively, but one of the questions in in teaching and lecturing on it, in, in writing about it, in, in doing policy advising, in meeting with practitioners, is not what the technology is, because I don't want to get into a techno-utopian view that technology is the future and it's always an improvement. 
But one of the, the biggest topics that we're often coming to is why are you using it? And then that influences how you're using it. So what are the purposes for why it's being used? And mm. I think when we've got some clarity on that, is it being used for deterrence? Is it being used for incapacitation? Is it being used to incentivise change and to bring in a structured, personalised regime um, that might stabilise mm. otherwise... Um, Daily days that aren't routine where people are often out and then they say, well, because of the home curfew, I was at home with my family or um, I needed to be more mindful of where I was and not meeting up with associates who I used to offend with. It gave me a reason not to go to the pub with them and to do this because that's where we always ended up then going and doing X, Y and Z, which... Um, mm. Uh, then gets into criminalisation and punishment. So um, I think if you're clear on why it's being used, the limits of its use, the ethics of its use, not just effectiveness but ethical considerations, you've then got a much more solid and sound base on which to raise awareness that when I'm regularly, I've done quite a bit of media uh, work where journalists will regularly ring up about stories to do with tagging and also uh, in criminology get our students in punishment and society or in our master's criminology modules to critically analyse the main headlines and, and um, public tropes or mm. narratives around what is a, a tag, who is it predominantly given it to, why is it used and and we've got quite a bit of work to do and one of the the recommendations from our research, the recommendations that are given to the, the Scottish Government and the Parliament, and things that they have been mindful of, of acting on, is having a, um, for them, a communication strategy, but for those of us who are not employed by them but are uh, interested in this area more widely, be very realistic in how you're communicating and making sure that the public know that Electronic monitoring tagging cannot stop crime. Um, just because you've got a tag mm. on your ankle, it cannot physically stop you. Um, it does not stop or change thinking um, and influences around pe why people commit crimes. So it often needs to be, um, in cases where it's warranted, integrated with other supports for leaving crime behind, um, community resources, professional supervision, um, social supports mm. for reintegration and resettlement on its own it's not a panacea and I get nervous when um, people are very preoccupied with well there's these tags there's all this new generation of apps there's these biometrics that you can use to identify um, you can do smartphone monitoring you can sync all of these things together you can put something in their homes and I think you really need to ask if that's flourishing in the area of criminal justice why why are we running towards increasing amounts of surveillance in lives that are already heavily surveilled and local community areas mm. that are already heavily surveilled so there's big questions around why we're using it and then there is quite a bit of work to do publicly in communicating about it but that you know there's there's been mixed reports and i think our more uh um, so one of the narratives in Scotland in the tabloid press in particular newspapers is that it's a form of uh, soft touch justice that just because it's mm. not prison that it's not really punishment um, that people can have 
the ability to still choose and do things whilst they've got a tag on and they often focus on the one or two high profile cases which have been really sad and distressing like we've had um, I can think of two or three that are sad they are distressing they involved serious harm um, in in two cases they involved loss of life and those are cases that the media can be drawn to and they're not drawn to mm -hmm. the thousands of other people who got tagged who didn't do uh, things that made headlines who were largely compliant because people do tend to not only be compliant but they tend to complete electronically monitored orders at moderately high rates in different jurisdictions. We've got the um, rates from across Europe and a lot of people tend to complete them. And one of the, the sensitive points mm. or the paradoxes is that um, standalone electronic monitoring orders can sometimes uh, have higher completion rates than the orders that have a social worker or a probation officer involved who's more likely to breach them. Um, now, there's, there's a set of reasons around why they might do that, but we need to be nuanced in how we talk about tags and not just have one grand narrative of it's all amazing and this is the way of the future mm. or it's all dystopian and terrible. Because personally, um, I, I would never describe myself as a fan of particular types of punishment. I don't need to be a proponent of particular types of punishment. Mm. But if I had to choose for myself or for a family member, um, despite the limitations mm. and the stresses and the harms, I would choose electronic monitoring tagging over a short prison sentence. Now, I recognise in, mm. in some instances other people might choose a short prison sentence, but there's research overall to suggest that people would tend towards electronic monitoring as something that will keep them in the community, even if it has its limitations and frustrations for them and their families or their households. Mm. Okay, and and on this question of why, as in why use this technology in the first place, maybe can I ask you about, you know, the current situation we find ourselves in in the summer of 2020 and, and how many governments around the world seem to be leaning into using technology as a way to deal with COVID-19 in relation to overcrowding in prisons. So, yeah, I wondered what you thought about this as the why in terms of using technology in connection to decarceration. Yeah, do you think our current context is a good motivation to look at other ways of doing justice rather than the more punitive methods we currently use? Yeah, so at this point in time, there's, there's it feels like a really pivotal point in time. Um, it feels like time is of the essence. It has been throughout mm. the pandemic and I think how we've experienced time has been at the forefront of our minds so there were days in the end of March and beginning of April that felt like those days and week took much longer and then there's other um, yeah. periods of time more recently where it feels like things are flying um, and the year is passing by and after three months of lockdown restrictions in the general community that our perception of time is different and attention is well and truly turning towards um, recovery and change in emerging from the COVID-19 uh, crisis and the implications mm. of not only the virus but the lockdown restrictions in the community but also the restrictions and emergency powers that have been used across the criminal justice system. Um, 
in quite a few jurisdictions, including uh, Scotland, we're still waiting for some details of recovery planning and the, the implications of how that will affect people on community sentences, as well as things around mm. like the the easing or the relaxation of the prison rules, which got amended um, using emergency powers to um, try and restrict the spread of the virus in prisons. And also, we should say contextually, during a time at which between 16 and at, at its peak, up to 25% of the prison workforce were absent from work uh, for different reasons, including mm. COVID-19 related reasons. So we've got a lot to think about. Um, I'd say from the perspective of an academic and a researcher, we need to be modest and cautious in what we think because there is not an abundance of research that's been done yet. Um, but there is a, a working with others who are attentive to human rights, to conditions, to the cultures in which um, we're hoping change will occur. And that change could be in different directions, but I think there is a tenacious hope that some of the decreases in um, prison populations might be potentially sustained, although that is definitely not a given and it will take some some moral courage and some political bravery to act to see that because um, some of the measures that have been enacted using emergency powers, so we've had uh, early release from prison in different jurisdictions across Europe and around the world, that has, um, in, in the case of Scotland, let out over just under 350 people early uh, during the month of May. And that was um, that was a risk in the sense of uh, using emergency powers and Scottish ministers using those powers. They didn't have to do that, but they chose to do that. They built policy and political consensus in the Scottish Parliament, and so it received support from across different parties. And it involved the release of a set amount of people into the community up to three months earlier than they would have otherwise been released. And community justice and charities rallied around that and tried to support the liberations and the reintegration. Mm. So that is welcome and that is something that criminologists, lawyers, human rights bodies, activists, um, a range of charities supported and called for in, in this jurisdiction and elsewhere. But from looking at the statistics on the prison population, the biggest impact on uh, the prison population in Scotland going from 8,094 on the 13th of March 2020 to 6,909 on the 12th of June 2020 was not the early release scheme. It's, it's readily acknowledged that it was more um, the front door of the criminal justice system. So decision making and practices mm. around courts and um, pro procurators fiscal, so the Scottish equivalent of prosecutors um, around decisions of bail or remand or the marking of cases and, and how they approach them in the courts. These have profound influences on the prison population. And I dare say that's probably something that we knew before the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's a conversation to be had around um, hmm. what actions or perhaps inaction 
uh, will it take to try and reduce not only incarceration rates but rates of punishment because we've got potentially yeah. thousands of people on community orders that might have, for example, one of the most common requirements is an unpaid work requirement, so a community service-like re requirement or community payback-like requirement. And if they've got hundreds of hours mm. each owing and their, <clears throat> their orders have been put on pause or suspended uh, because of the pandemic and because of lockdown restrictions and not being able to associate in groups. There's some high level and practical level conversations that could happen in this jurisdiction and in other jurisdictions around what are we going to do with that? How are we going to have a mm. recovery? Is there a place or even a moment socially and politically and practically to have some level of um, for example, amnesty or dropping of some of those hours because people were made to wait so much longer than they would have otherwise had to wait to do their unpaid mm. hours? Or can their unpaid hours be done in a way that um, is constructive, is a part of the recovery efforts? Uh, it might be outdoors, for example, so less uh, risk of spread of the virus. It would still need safety planning um, for the people involved, both the staff as well as the people on the orders. But there's questions around how we mobilise um, and restart parts of the justice system, like the courts have been on very limited business during the crisis and they are starting up. But we still need to emphasise the, the independence of the judiciary. Um, you cannot overstep those powers in a healthy democracy without risking um, a level of concern and in, injustice. And so how, mm. do, how does the government and the parliament, but as well as the independent courts and judiciary, consider um, the numbers of people which in, in prison at the moment have dropped in Scotland by uh, 2,000 people, but will rapidly go back up to what they were before and potentially uh, even higher if we have an intersecting clash of different backlogs. So currently we've got an estimated mm. um, 700,000 hours of unpaid work that haven't been done. Um, so people waiting for longer on community orders, they might potentially be non-compliant and be breached or need to be mm. re-sentenced to something that might include a short prison sentence. Um, and then we've got the court business of people being sentenced to prison. So how do we think about this at a macro level and have conversations mm. about Scotland not returning to being a high punishment society? Because in Europe, uh, we have one of the, the highest rates of incarceration, as well as one of the highest rates of community sentencing and, and uh, probation rates. And my colleague um, and friend, Fergus McNeil at the University of Glasgow has written extensively about this in his project on pervasive punishment and how uh, a nation that sees itself as quite welfare oriented, as quite progressive, as, as trying to help people change, uh, has some inconvenient truths and, and some statistics and practice realities that, that speak to mm. Scotland as perhaps having quite a punitive streak or having a high rate of punishment even if in some cases the reasons are given that it would help stabilise people or it would help people access alcohol and other drugs uh, rehabilitation or it would help them access treatment. Um, a lot of us would argue mm. that you should not have to have 
contact with the justice system and get increasingly drawn into that, that mesh of, of control um, in order to access help. And so our attention would be around diversion from prosecution, um, diversion from yeah. prison and community-based uh, options that have a good social justice element and an and attentiveness to not only lives but life chances, inequalities, human dignity, um, as well as uh, I think in the foreseeable future we will continue to see quite um, high profile and harmful cases continue to be sentenced to prison um, so we can have conversations mm. around early release on licence or around the use of parole in cases where it's appropriate to do so. Yeah, so I guess a lot of work around the front door as you as you put it to when when things get back to whatever normal becomes that people aren't pushed through the, the front door very quickly and thinking of ways to avoid that and i guess yeah after speaking about that front door i want to link to your book which is called rehabilitation work supporting desistance and recovery which is obviously very much on the other end of the of the spectrum and um, helping people to reintegrate after spending time in prison. And yeah, I want to, so you've kindly recorded an, an extract from this book, which I will play in a second. Before we get to that, this is, this is about the Australian justice system and probation system rather than the Scottish. And so just before I play the clip, is there anything sort of context wise that you'd like to, to mention that's specific about the Australian system or different, or, or similar to, to the Scottish system? Yeah, so it's different in size and it's different in culture and context. Um, Australia has the federal government and then the states and territories and criminal justice is devolved to the eight states and territories. So there's eight different criminal justice systems in Australia. Um, and then alcohol and other drugs and that field, which is also in the book, um, is in health, which is a mixture of devolved locally to the states and territories, as well as a national um, Australian government department of health and ageing. And so um, this research was conducted in one of those states and territories, but then also looked to literature and workforce secondary data um, on why so much of the workforce in those who worked in particularly tricky areas or um, areas with a lot of precarity, why there's so much workforce turnover, so why people are leaving the workforce and every time they're on a 12-month mm. competitive tendering job contract, that why there is so much churn and change amongst mm. practitioners in who have more precarity. And then amongst public servants and civil servants who work in justice areas, so they tend to have more secure employment conditions. And Australia has some formidably good industrial rights. It has very high right, rates of pay for practitioners, particularly in criminal justice. So probation officers and prison officers are paid quite highly. People who work in the courts are paid quite highly relative to elsewhere. Um, they are not mm. leaving their jobs because they've got very good jobs, albeit stressful and hard. But I noticed that they had a disproportionate amount of going on leave. And so extensive uses of sick leave and other forms of leave and workforce absence and so whilst mm. uh, working full-time, um, I decided in, in this area, actually, in, in, on related projects, 
I did my PhD part-time and then turned it into this book that's all about uh, justice work, um, alcohol and other drugs work and how they work with people with multiple complex needs or who have more than one thing going on in their circumstances and are affected by multiple structural inequalities. And so, yeah, hmm. a bit of criminology, but also a bit of sociology of work in the professions to look at power and control in these fields of work and also how we have the risk model or how we support desistance or have recovery-oriented systems of care. So it was it was a long project, but it was a brilliant project and it involved mm. um, quite a lot of people that are, uh, I have a lot of respect for, so it was a privilege to do. Great, thanks for that. And so I'll play the clip now. This is an excerpt from my book, Rehabilitation Work, Supporting Desistance and Recovery, which is published by Routledge. It's on theorising justice work and the helping professions, exploring two concepts. So job crafting, which has a number of processes, meaning making and strategies incorporated within it. It can take a number of forms, but it's defined by Rusniewski and Dutton as the physical and cognitive changes individuals make in the tasks or relational boundaries of their job, changing their identity and meaning of work in the process. Job crafting is a creative and improvised process that captures how individuals locally adapt their jobs in ways that create and sustain a viable definition of the work they do and who they are at work. The concept of entrepreneurship is useful in describing how certain practitioners in this research engage in creative work, start up innovative initiatives and champion change, including practice and culture change. Such efforts are for the benefit of supporting those they work with, but also for their own intellectual stimulation and job satisfaction. An entrepreneur is defined as an individual within a large organisation or institution who devises new approaches or methods or creates new value and opportunities using entrepreneurship and innovation. Entrepreneurs often do these things independently or with the support of a few, whereas entrepreneurs are changing systems and processes from the inside. To succeed at this, they're often afforded more flexibility and trust, where they're allowed to operate outside or go beyond organisational rules and routines, albeit with integrity, to pursue original and pioneering ideas and implement them with a view to achieving better outcomes. In large organisations and systems which are typically bureaucratic and risk averse, Entrepreneurship involves socially competent forward thinking and high levels of initiative in human capital. And there's synergies in the conceptualization of entrepreneurship and the job crafting strategies observed in this study, as well as the UK study of probation officers by Morby and Worrell in 2013. And they also talk about responsible creativity. The value of this to practitioners is described as a way of easing pressures and tedious routine work, as well as a form of resourcefulness and putting professional skills to the test for the good of those they work with. Responsible creativity, innovation and entrepreneurship in criminal justice organisations 
are examples of evading, counteracting, or perhaps even rebelling against bureaucratised professionalism and managerialist rationality. And this accords with uh, what David Garland says, how managerialism can stymie innovation. He says it can limit experimentation, favour outputs over outcomes, skew practice to fit performance indicators, limit the discretion of staff, and diminish an agency's real effectiveness in order to maximise the practices that are most easily measurable. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah, super interesting about all the different um, aspects of working within and outside organisation. And this 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 phrase around being an intrapreneur, um, someone who makes changes from the inside of an organisation, um, I, I find it's really interesting because it's, it's easy to criticise organisations and say they should do this, they should do that, they should change in certain ways. And some people disagree so much with organisations that they said they would never work for them where other people feel like the best way to change the culture of an organization is is from within and so do you think that we need to think about more about entrepreneurs within the probation and prison service or even within the university sector yeah indeed so it, it was an interesting concept when uh, i came across it because it was actually um, influenced by doing a separate book on innovative justice and looking at examples of what's considered mm. innovative uh, around the world and that was with a colleague and PhD supervisor uh, Rob White so we were doing that concurrently and then it was a, I think entrepreneurship has quite um, we see it as you know quite a cool or a trendy role but also has quite capitalist overtones and um, in, in justice mm. systems which are, are not heavily uh, private privatized or privately oriented and in the jurisdiction where this rehabilitation workbook uh, the research was done there isn't privatization of um, of criminal justice thankfully um, and so that entrepreneurial mm. spirit doesn't quite fully speak to it and also entrepreneurs are often seen as quite uh, individual it can be about the person and their personality of oh I'm, I'm a social entrepreneur and a lot of the literatures on innovation and social innovation are from sectors that feel quite far removed from large institutions and institutions with hierarchies, institutions uh, that might at times have inertia or risk aversion or things that can make it hard to see change. But when I've raised and explained mm. uh, the concept of entrepreneurship, both in the UK as well as in different jurisdictions in Australia, a few practitioners have seized on it and said, actually, do you want to talk about that? I could give you quite a few examples. And they talk about it. And then it often ties in with the notion of job crafting because they're not only doing it for seeing benefits and change within a system, um, but it's also because it brings meaning and sense-making to their work. It can bring satisfaction um, because overall in the project, I was fascinated. If so many people are leaving the sector or going on leave, why do others mm -hmm. stay? And not only stay, 
but not burn out? How do they innovate? How do they do all these things that aren't fully captured by the official uh, website or by the overarching statements of in this jurisdiction, we do this, we use the risk-need responsivity model, um, we have these processes. Those narratives around what an institution and its practices and practitioners do are fine, but they're very one-dimensional and there can be other realities of what people do uh, in their work that really shapes that sense of their work, but also can bring about initiatives that do see change. And I'm not talking an overly naive, optimistic, make a difference, sing kumbaya kind of change. I'm, I'm talking about people mm. ma making mm. meaningful change and managing to realise things within systems that previously didn't allow them to do it. And it can be about... Um, relational or power dynamics. I mean, in, in the jurisdiction uh, that this research was conducted and the practitioners in justice there had set up um, quite a few initiatives that off, off their own back, out of their own uh, professional and personal con contacts, and networks, they'd set up mm. basically communities of interest around certain initiatives and projects. And these projects were done in this context with people in prison, but it was not done as extra, um, you've got to do this community service or you've got to give back or pay back because that's part of your debt to society. It was done out of a sense of... Um, orienting people towards social rehabilitation, engaging with communities, preparing for desistance processes and reintegration processes, and just doing things that are a use of time that's meaningful, that involves learning social and mm. human capital um, and is enjoyable. It might uh, result in training and accreditation certificates. Um, it might result in improved health or well-being or a sense of um, contributing in ways that were not mandated or punitive because by the time that people have been to prison and some of the people um, that were involved in our other book that looked at these projects had, had been in prison for a long time or had mm. been in, in prison multiple times um, choice is such a precious commodity the ability to to co-design and do things that you might potentially enjoy that have nothing to do with punishment or incapacitation um, even though within the <clears throat> restraints of the prison environment th these were projects that interest me um, and others. So it was around setting up things like prison community gardens and food network where there was three community gardens, mm. one of which was inside the prison walls, two of which were um, more in the community in co-located areas and um, that was around community gardening, gardening in, in the real sense of people coming in uh, from the community, people from prison going out on temporary leave on a regular or even uh, daily basis um, of developing organic food, uh, being trained, gaining knowledge, skills and expertise, 
um, and some of that was uh, resulted in qualifications or accreditation in certain areas. And then the organic food, that, the, the wealth of organic food that was developed from uh, these gardens then went to the neighbourhood centre to children's breakfast and holiday programs. And this was in a co-located area that had experienced quite a lot of socioeconomic deprivation and structural inequalities. And so... Mm. The people in prison, it was predominantly men who were involved with it. Um, they, When they spoke about it, um, and we interviewed them about it for a, a different book, um, they talked about what it meant to them in terms of identity, values, meaning, um, relationships and change. But then in this book, I also touched on it in terms of justice work because the practitioner said, you mm -hmm. know, this is, this is not the only facet of my work that I enjoy, but... I love turning up to this. I enjoy visiting the garden. I get to uh, have a sense of my own professionalism in that we, you know, managed to build from grassroots up something that ended up, you know, one of the last people to announce or welcome it uh, in the media and in the parliament was the, the Minister for Justice and, and subsequent ministers mm -hmm. after that were quite welcoming and s supportive, even when it changed from a Labour-Green government to a Liberal or Conservative government. Um, it was an initiative that people were proud of and it's one of 14 or 15 initiatives, um, you know, that were set up that people really enjoyed and it bore fruit uh, in ways that changed how people thought about themselves and their work and their own expertise um, and had examples where they could do entrepreneurship. Um, another initiative was... Uh, leading in quite incredible ways, actually, in the wake of a, nat a natural disaster. So bushfire um, recovery assistance. Australia has fires every year. There's a fire season, but there was a very dangerous and destructive fire season. And uh, the men in prison and uh, the practitioners who were working with them and alongside them managed to sort of spearhead recovery efforts in ways that were so well received and so well respected that mayors were giving them thank you recognition award ceremonies um there was many mm. many thousands of hours that got used on um temporary release on license where um, some of the prisoners who were involved actually barely spent any time in prison and the practitioners felt that their sense of work, um, the meaning in which they attached to their work, the identity of their field of work, um, these were predominantly non-uniformed prison and justice workers as well as charity workers, so they're not prison officers themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but they found that there was... It, it brought a pride and a meaning and um, a sense of collaboration to their work that was not about entirely focused on risk assessment and structured tools and case management and even though all those um, quite mainstream things happened in the background it brought an, an interdisciplinarity mm. and professional relationships across borders and boundaries um, and doing something that was could have been um, you know it, it, it made headlines as a form of suffering even though not many people died in those bushfires the destruction on farms and in coastal communities across the state was quite severe and yet um they made a difference that at one point we had um a few days running newspaper front page outcry 
when uh, the Attorney General and Minister for Justice had talked about the benefits of the scheme and the giving back and the connecting with communities and some of the people in prison were wanting to mm. actually, when they left prison, uh, move to those areas and communities that they'd helped because they had a sense of um, oh, wow. status, of thanks, of being a, a local hero and having rebuilt thousands upon thousands of <sighs> metres or you know, of fences on farms. Um, they'd mm. done something in agricultural and coastal communities that was very well recognised. And then when the public heard that um, there were, I think in one year, up to 19,000 hours of temporary release on licence or, or 19,000 episodes of temporary release on licence, which is, mm. that means that basically our prisoners in that area um, spent very little time in prison. They were spending most of it in communities, mm. um, like a job. They were equipped with safety training. Um, they were pr paid a prison wage. They were recognised um, as in really positive uh, ways. And then there was, there was public outcry from... Mm the Farmers and Graziers Association and from members of the public as to why didn't you let them out more? Why can't they do more of this? We want an increase in this. And that, that's mm. sort of counter to the narrative that criminal justice work and, yeah. and prison work specifically or being in prison, um, that there can't be collaboration, there can't be good stories. And, and in this initiative that was quite high profile profoundly successful and well received it doesn't diminish the pains of prison so it's not to say that people who were in prison during that time didn't have the harms of incarceration they, they would have but the opportunity to spend very little time in prison to work in teams in ways that have been risk assessed, were given uh, training and safety equipment, were out in the fresh air in coastal and regional and rural environments, and were very positively recognised, including from um, political quarters or circles that are not quick to recognise either justice workers or people with convictions. It, it went well and mm. it started from... Um, in the initial phases, some practitioners and then working uh, with the people in prison being brave and saying, actually, we, we can reorient, we can work together to do this in ways where we're not going to put the public at risk. It doesn't need to be entirely a risk narrative. Mm. And I just have so much respect for the work that they did in the early days of building this from the ground up. But then it was in response to a substantive community need that, that affected nearly everyone everyone and had somewhat of a unifying effect for that time because those fires burnt a very large amount um, and is a part of the Australian psyche or our experience of what it is to live in our land. Fire happens every year and those were mm. very um, serious and destructive ones. So those are a few examples. There's, there's many yeah. more examples I could give, but yeah. I'm interested in how practitioners craft their sense of professionalism, their identity at work, the mm. meaning and contribution or influence of the work that they do, um, how they work with others and use their power and authority or perhaps constrain and hold back their power and authority um, and work within the boundaries yeah. of their work but also change the boundaries of their work. And I'll, I'll definitely put the link to that book in the show notes this 
episode so people can find that and read some more if they'd like to. But I actually want to ask you a bit more about you and, you know, your passions. I mean, you're clearly so passionate about all of these different areas. And so I wanted to ask you partly about how you divide your energies. I mean, there's there's so many different aspects just within criminal justice that you're interested in. How do you divide your time between publishing and then, you know, the pressures of publishing and then also spending time on policy work and many other aspects? But also, where where's this passion come from in the first place? I know that many people say that they've kind of fallen into criminal justice, but I believe you have a bit more of a heritage in it. So I wondered if you'd yeah, like I to do. talk a bit about um, that. So... I've grown up in a family where um, working with people across social and human services um, has been the case for multiple family members even before I was born. Um, So it could be um, a a homeless youth festival. Um, It could be um, a, a... areas in homelessness, housing, accommodation, unemployment services, um, charities and setting up of charities, uh, prisons, probation and parole, mental health court, drug court, alcohol and other drugs, rehab, um, domestic abuse, support services. There's there's few places in which um, my family haven't worked, I guess. Um, and 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 volunteered, yeah. and yeah. that's something that um, I'm I'm really appreciative of. It has, I think, a value for social justice, and also having grown up visiting uh, some of those contexts, and I think it's instilled in me a real um, tenacity and passion for uh, work in those areas, but also a, a strong. Um, my family members are very non-judgmental and I think being raised in a home where you've had the opportunity Mm. to mix with people from very, very different backgrounds. And my family background is modest within itself. So it's not from, I'm I'm not from a particularly uh, elite or privileged background, although throughout our lives we can come to have roles where you absolutely need to recognise privilege and power and position and things like that. But, um, yeah, strong social Mm. justice values. Um, At different points, three of us or four of us were studying at the same university. Um, A few of us have postgraduate qualifications in criminology and corrections um, and were studying either at the same time or then uh, there are things around whether you can supervise your own family members. Obviously, you can't. Um, There were uh, policy and practice advisory roles that I held where I would turn up and uh, a family member was also one of the people appointed to that group or a member of that group. Or I would turn up to different courts and they would say, oh, you're so-and-so's daughter or son, or um, they would get described as um, Hannah's mum or dad, um, depending on which Hmm, uh, family member or um, there's there's even further family members than that who have worked in this area. And so I think it's an area where we've we've come at it from uh, just a real interest in people 
um, and in the community sector as well as the public sector. I've I've only worked in in research roles, but I've been very familiar with visiting those other places. And I think it's probably instilled in me a sense of how things are interconnected. So um, you get to be there for moments that are in practice settings where also a lot of friends work, uh, colleagues that you get on incredibly well with. Um, you can be there for amazing achievements and breakthroughs and announcements that are very positive and constructive. You can be in their workplace when something profoundly difficult and sad has happened. Um, you can, I guess, be a witness to that and be someone who listens. Um, and isn't out mm. for a quick fix or for a here's my opinion. And I think growing up in a, in a family of origin where um, they have borne witness to and compassionately and professionally worked with such a variety of people, I mean, across even just the justice system, um, people with social inequalities and structural inequalities as well as considerable criminalisation and punishment and in some cases I'm sure they would have worked with more mm. than one generation or they would have met more than one generation because I'm only in my mid-30s and I've met people um, who are family members that have been uh, caught up in, in systems of power and control and punishment so yeah I've, I've got a family heritage mm. that I'm particularly proud of um, they have been formidable um, in supporting people through, you know, either large-scale crime events or um, through to things like suicide prevention and mental health and well-being, through to upholding human rights mm. in places of detention um, and making sure that people's rights are held. Mm. Um, you know, they, they've worked across the spectrum of areas, and I've learnt a lot from them and it has informed my my passion in this area um and those mm. uh, i don't have family in scotland in and in europe in the context in which i work now but i found that the camaraderie and the collegiality can still be quite strong and you can come to a sense mm. of understanding and recognition of the different points of view that um, can work together quite well in terms of balancing yeah. things, that's a really good question. I think um, academics have a tendency to overvalue themselves for what they do. Uh, I would suggest that this is what mm -hmm. I do. It's not the fullness of who I am. And having gone through a process mm. um, in my 20s of recognising quite early on that perfectionism is very unhelpful, uh, it can hinder um, being able to do multiple things, it can hold you back, um, the fear of not being good enough, um, anxiety about rejection. So I think working through that at an mm. early stage and getting to the point where you just are able to be quite confident and throw yourself into things without, if, if you put in a research funding bid and you don't get it, it's not a rejection of who you are or you as a scholar. Um, it's not a mm. measure of who you are. And so, yeah, I do need to keep an eye on balancing the different areas of work that I do. But I think that being, having been trained in Australian criminology, it's really common to publish prolifically, um, but also to do a lot of public, community-engaged, politically-engaged 
uh, roles and turn up to a lot of events or speak in public in the media. Um, I personally am not a member of a political party and never have been, but I'm very interested in the political and the public realm in terms of issues of justice and injustice. Mm. And so in Australia, it's quite normal not only to do your research, but to have that really public scholarship and then to public publish prolifically um, and I think that happens in the UK mm. as well although perhaps there is more uh, specialization in certain areas for some people and you know that's brilliant I, I don't have any issues with that but I in mm. terms of how I've been trained and the people that I've been around it's it's been an inherent part of how I see my work or my career as mixing mm. in different circles, listening in different circles and speaking into different circles, be it um, an everyday conversation that's profoundly insightful with um, a person with different experiences through to um, national media or uh, speaking into policy or political realms, it's a privilege and I find it interesting. It helps me be a growing person rather than um, stale mm. and resting on laurels of a sense of, well, I've read lots of things or I get to lecture. Well, I think being more public and practice engaged keeps you on your toes and it gives you opportunities mm. for all those theories and uh, concepts to become applied, to become thinking tools or lenses through which you explain certain issues and patterns. So, yes, I need to keep an eye mm. on balance between the areas, but I don't... I'm the type of person, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, and I'll throw myself into it and try and do it to the best of my ability. I don't yeah. like doing uh, things by halves. The, the downside is busyness. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be yeah. mindful of... <laughs> Busyness because prior to COVID, um, you know, I would have been on a plane and or a train or leaving S Scotland for the last five or six years, probably every eight to 12 weeks on average. And so a lot of travel, a lot of commuting within Scotland. Yeah. And, and that's what was necessary to be um, in the places and around people and having a place at the table of the things that I cared about. But I think um, the, the mm. three months of COVID and a sense of being grounded has been good for thinking through and, and refocusing in certain areas. And I don't really intend to change what I've been working on, but there are certain areas I can yeah. probably focus on more and other areas where it's just really best to say no. Yeah, well, I mean, off the back of that, then thinking about all these different places that you have invested your energies, and it is all linked to, you know, a positive momentum in a certain way. What does what does impact mean to you, and what do you hope to achieve, sort of long term? Yeah, so the impact is quite a loaded term in academia. Um, it has some. Yeah. <laughs> and the NGO world and oh. practitioner world and so, so that's why I find it interesting to ask each person what it you know what it what it means to you rather than you know the the log frames of the uh, of the NGO world or the um the, the papers you need to fill out for the ref in academia you know what it, what do what do you what impact do you hope to have in the world and what does it mean for you to have impact yeah, so I think there's, there's probably um, similar to people in charities, in government, in different places. There's a healthy 
um, realism and at times cynicism that some of the best or most important things cannot be counted, they're not easily measurable, they're not easily ranked, um, or some of the things that get mm-hmm. you prestige. So um, getting into one of the top journals or... Um, doing a comparative research project that's one of the first of its kind in Europe, that is a privilege and it will bring a certain recognition to the teams or the individuals who get to do that. So that is important and worthwhile Mm. and uh, it's amazing to be part of that. There are other things that will never get counted or ranked. Um, there's, There's publications or projects that I'm a part of and they would never be submitted to the REFs, so the Research Excellence framework as a way of considering how higher education and universities are funded based on certain um, criteria or or measures of research quality, um, originality and Mm. innovation. So some of the book chapters that I've written or some of the, the European collectives and events that I've been a part of those were not done for the purposes of being highly scored or highly ranked in those particular exercises. They're not done for a very narrow or instrumental focus on impact. They were done out of a place of relationship and collegiality and interest and wanting to contribute. And Mm. then often those things that don't count or are seen as... um, less highly ranked can lead to research relationships with academics and with others, uh, people who use our research, people who take part in our research, that might then lead on to a grant that brings in a significant amount of money um, that is highly recognised or seen as prestigious for particular reasons. So I think don't decry or denigrate the days of small beginnings or don't decry or denigrate the things that are inherently about good relationships research reputation in ways that can't be measured Mm. or counted um, and a form of our own giving back and also I need to be reflexive about my job crafting and entrepreneurship as an academic I do things because they are life-giving and because they may actually contribute to change Mm. but in terms of managing Busyness mm. as an academic, you've still got to have integrity to, to the fundamentals of what it is that you're employed to do. And I think that the research and research impact, the connections with practitioners and policymakers can infuse back to our teaching and lecturing, the stories in which we tell students, the way that we train them, prepare them for certain Mm -hmm. uh, workforce cultures or policy frameworks, but also use theories and ideas that cut through some of that. Um, The things go together quite well and they don't have to be to the exclusion of others. I think if you've spent a lot of time in different contexts or at the coalface, you'll probably make for uh, a a good Mm. lecture in terms of using theory and concepts with very fresh examples and stories and encouraging students to apply their critical analytical thinking skills to that. Um, And then in those classes, I often reflect Mm. and then that Mm. might inform what I then write in a policy briefing or write in a paper or say in the media. So I see these things as influencing one another. And I, I like the word influence considerably more than I do impact because I think, again, academia is pressured to take a lot of Mm. credit for things that are well and truly down to relationships 
um, working amongst collaboration amongst mm. diverse allies, and we need to be really yeah. quite humble that we do not have uh, uh, all the knowledge, and, and we need to sort of be what um, have what might be called epistemological humility and an awareness that actually this was infused. Um, and largely contributed to by the labour, by the efforts, the emotional labour of other people. And I think we need to have a driving mm. ethical concern around how we recognise other people in any uh, write-ups or case studies of impact that we give because it really lacks ethics if you can't acknowledge mm. how all these other people and contexts have played mm. into it. And I think Yeah, and I really I like your idea around influence rather than impact. And I, I like to think about things in terms of contribution rather than attribution in a lot of cases, rather than having to claim this, this space of, of impact. And well, we're going to have to um, conclude, but I want to ask you a theoretical question before we finished or um, hypothetical question, I should say. And that is that, you know, thinking about all of your work and um, the, the direction that you you're thinking about in terms of positive reform and progression if we had a room that we could fill with whoever you wanted to and you had half an hour to speak to them about whatever you wanted to who would you put in that room and what would you be Gosh, saying that's, uh, that's um that's a very good question um i mean it, to take a very practical example from the circumstances that we find ourselves in in the end of June in 2020 if we were to have a place around the table um, and a conversation that would certainly take a lot longer than half an hour I would gather people from uh, different experiences, different professional backgrounds, lived experiences as well as political and policy people and I would have a really thorough mm -hmm. and reflexive conversation around uh, visions and strategies for Scottish justice in emerging from COVID-19 to take one, this is certainly not the main focus of my work, mm. but for now it is um, a priority. And I think a part of that has to be what kind of control do we want to relinquish or what kind of punishment would we wish to leave behind? What part of our, our history of being um, mm. a nation that heavily uses punishment could we see to actually pursue more community engaged, more socially just as well as criminally just uh, options that are not heavily predicated mm. on formal institutions? Now, I'm not I'm not suggesting that will be appropriate for absolutely all offence types and all people, but how could we move away from using punishment um, as a response to what are potentially issues of fear in society or? Um, Mm. Uh, mm. issues of under-resourcing and structural inequalities where if those needs were met elsewhere in other systems or in local communities, they would not necessarily find themselves prolifically coming before a justice system for issues that are frustrating and they are technically mm. illegal but do not necessarily warrant catching up certain lives or, or affecting entire groups and, and locales and life chances and catching them up disproportionately in the justice system. There's been many of these conversations before, there will be many to happen again, but I'm interested in moral courage and political bravery and social bravery around what we would be willing to do and not do to leave uh, 
aspects of this history behind where we've locked up too many of our own and we've put too many of our own on community orders so how could we move away from that and shift towards socially just community-based responses that would encapsulate quite a few of my passions um, Mm. as well as a few of the different groups that I love getting to listen to and learn from. Brilliant okay great Dr Hannah Graham thank you so much for speaking with us today really appreciate it thank you so much for having me okay that's the show for this week hope you enjoyed that i found it interesting if you'd like to hear more about hannah's work you can find her on twitter she's at dr hannah graham or you can follow the podcast at justice underscore focus or me at omar p khan and we'll see you next time cheers <laughs>